0: Afternoons with me, Bill Arnold here, and I've got a wonderful hour planned for you with Dr. Mark Muska in studio. Mark uh, is a regular guest on the show and a friend, and I can't wait when he comes in because we get lots of Bible questions answered and explored. So I'm looking forward to getting your questions. You can call and come right on the air and be uh, speaking to Mark directly, or you can send a text. I, I love it when people can call because it's uh, really nice to hear your voice and here the question and Mark can ask you other questions as well just to keep it flowing that number is 8779332484 8779332484 we already have questions coming in so let me just take 60 seconds and then when we come back we'll get at it <laughs> Welcome to the Bill Arnold Show, where we meet and greet Mark Muska's sound asleep. <laughs> <laughs> come on, this is the mood music. can
1: keep... get a little peppier music? No,
0: not right now. You've Oh, got oh man. Some, you know, let's meet and greet. Who do you want to say hi I, to? I feel fall asleep oh, when you on, play music don't like this. come don't give me that. This
1: is soothing. Bill, People I are driving
0: to... home after a long day of stress. Uh,
1: I suppose. I don't know. They're going to fall asleep at the wheel, though. You're going to cause accidents. <laughs> come on.
0: They're
1: trying to relax. Yeah, I suppose. I got to say hi to my two grandsons because my wife is with them here the next couple of days, (laughs) and I. (laughs) Rumor has it that they're listening here this afternoon, and so I just have to say hi to Jonah and hi to Ezra. Nice. And Jonah, his secret name is Blabby Bluey, and so (laughs) hi Blabby. This is Papa. So I (laughs) hope you're having a great afternoon. I guess it's not secret anymore, though, it's is it? It's not, no. it went across no, blabby bluey. country, yeah. yeah. Good, good old blabby. And they call so. you what? Like Papa. Papa? Mm-hmm. Very nice. They call me other names, too, but I can't see them <laughs> on the air.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you can do blabby-bluey, right? That's right, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I should start calling Rob Bluey that, too, blabby-bluey. hmm <laughs> Anyway. It's uh, catchy, isn't it? It is catchy. Mm-hmm. I like it. So, uh, welcome to An Hour with Mark Muska. And if you have a question you want answered, let us know what what it is. 877-933-2484. Here's a question right off the bat from a listener. Um, How do you field questions about the number of Bible translations in English? I'm thinking two scenarios. Uh, One, Mm -hmm. questions by unbelievers who use it as an excuse that we can't know what the Bible really says and two questions from new believers that need a good Bible study they will actually read and understand.
1: Yeah, uh, start with the last one first. Okay. With, with those who are followers of Christ, that we live in a rich age, Bill. It's unprecedented. The church has never seen this with so many really outstanding translations of the Bible in English and in hundreds of languages around the world. Uh, the church has never seen this. It's amazing how, how much, and so we have at our disposal now... All kinds of choices when it comes to Christians reading their Bibles. Uh, There's very literal translations that are oftentimes good. Uh, for Bible study, when you really chomp into a, a verse and take it apart word by word, that type of thing mm-hmm. because it 's very, very close to the original languages of the Bible for those people who don 't know the scriptures were originally written primarily in Hebrew, the Old Testament, and then the Greek language in the New Testament. but uh, there are very good Bibles that translate very closely the, the that language into the English language, and it 's real good for Bible study. There are other translations that translate more idea for idea or phrase by phrase from the original languages. And it's not quite as accurate as precise, but it's much easier reading. And so it makes for really good reading. And then uh, there have been paraphrases of the Bible that have been popular, too, where they really just go off in a whole different direction. When I was first a Christian, the Living Bible Mm. was a case for this, where people could read it. It read like the newspaper. It was easy language to read. You didn't have the thous and the these and the shells and the shell knots and all this kind of thing in there. And people ate it up because they were able to read and understand the scriptures, so uh, my advice to uh, Christians is uh, go online especially in the day and age we live in today and just read from some of the translations that are out there if you just type in a search for uh, bible translations you will have more to look at than you can go through in a month and so you can look at that and read some of them and get an idea from about what best uh, what best you connect with mm-hmm. so uh, that uh, that's just a wonderful gift that God has given the church here in the 21st century. Yeah. All these translations. Now as far as the person who doesn't know Christ and maybe is uh, critical of Christianity, the the idea that uh you know so many translations we really don't know what they mean, is that what you're getting at that we 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 can't really understand it right well there is an element of truth to that because any linguist will tell you anyone who studies languages that when you translate from one language to another there's always something that's lost there you cannot capture it completely but with the bible translations we have today they are so close to the original languages it's not even funny you take um, like five or six of the best most popular Bible translations bill. And there have been uh, committees and uh, uh, boards and editors that have gone through these things, dozens of Bible scholars that have conferred and worked on these translations. They come up with a draft and they take it apart and they make revisions and then they make more revisions. Just look at the front of your Bible sometime and you'll see dozens of names of scholars in the scriptures uh, that have contributed to these translations. And so uh, they are extremely accurate. There are times uh, when I'm in class, sometimes I'll try to clarify a word if students may uh, take uh, the meaning of a word in the wrong direction. Uh, one of the old ones now that, that the uh, modern translations are, are making up for is when it says something. I, w- I was just in Acts yesterday, and in uh, Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen is stoned to death by the Uh, by the Jews because of his witness to Jesus. And the translations used to say that they uh, 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 Stephen was stoned. But then you get into the psychedelic era ever since the 60s and somebody being stoned means they're on narcotics. And so now the translations want to clarify that to say that he was stoned to death, that he was put to death by stoning. So they'll clarify things like that. It's a silly little example, but it tells you how intent these translators are to get the meaning right, so you 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 don't mislead people with the inter, uh, with the translations mm-hmm. that you have. So uh, we can have great confidence in our Bibles. You don't have to be looking at your Bible sideways and saying, "Can I really trust this translation?" If it's one of the major ones out there, uh, you you'll be just fine with it.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Mark, when I think of First uh, Corinthians fifteen, uh, Christ died for our sins, and He was buried, and He rose again. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the gospel, right? Yep. So Jesus's mission was very clear, very, very, uh, straightforward. Um, and on the third day I will rise on the third day I'll rise on the third day I will rise. Yep. Repeated that several times.
1: Yeah. Especially as he was heading toward Jerusalem.
0: Yes. So, Mm -hmm. uh, he goes to the cross and dies on the third day. Mary runs to the tomb to finish dressing the dead body. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, He's not there. He's not there. Yeah. So why did we have, why did everyone, and then she raced back and said, he's gone. And Mm -hmm. why didn't they all go, well, of course he's gone because he's risen from the dead.
1: Mm -hmm. Just like he said he was. Why was there so much confusion? yeah this um, I think we have to give these people a break because I, I agree, but uh, it's easy for us armchair quarterbacks on Monday morning here to look back on these people and be very critical of them, and you know why were they so boneheaded uh, <laughs> with this but mm-hmm. uh, I think that much of jesus' ministry he was out there about two or three chapters ahead in the story from where they were, and they were constantly trying to catch up to the things that he was saying. You see a lot of confusion in the Gospels of the disciples, just not understanding him. He's speaking at a whole different level, talking about new things they had never heard before. And remember, these followers weren't exactly the Bible scholars of the age either. They were fishermen and tax collectors and physicians in this. So uh, they were just, you know, your your average blue-collar working people that were trying to stay with Jesus with what he said. Combined with that, Bill, we also get hints in the Scriptures that of God, uh, their eyes had not yet been opened to these truths by the Lord. And that in particular, in John's gospel, it says early on that Jesus talked about all these things that would happen about uh, destroying the temple and three days later, rising it up, Mm -hmm. raising it up. And uh, then John throws in after his resurrection, they understood this. It's like, that's what he was talking about when he said that. So the light bulb went on. It's something we have to admit to as well, Bill, that uh, there's a doctrine that we call the illumination of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And illuminate means to light a room. You know, So uh, to illuminate us means that if we don't have the illuminating work of the Spirit of God working inside our minds and hearts, we're not going to understand it either, that God opens our hearts to the gospel and the meaning of scripture, I know most of your listeners are probably, they've had this thing happen to them where they've read a passage dozens of times in their life, and then they read it last Sunday in church, and it just leaps off the page at them, and they're just going, whoa, I've never seen that before. And the, the person's spouse could say to him, what are you talking about? You've read that so many times, I can't count. <laughs> but it's the idea that the light bulb went on for them, that it, the connection was made, and God uh, enabled them to uh, perceive and understand the scriptures. So uh, that, we have to give these people some room with Mm -hmm. with the resurrection. This was a whole new thing that was being inaugurated
0: here. Mm -hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is in the studio. So let me know what your questions are. You can call and ask directly. If you want to come on the show, I'd love to hear your voice. And I would love for you to ask Mark your question or you can send me a text and I'll read it to him and ask on your behalf. I'd be happy to do either one. 877 933 Two four eight four. We'll be back in ninety
2: seconds. (laughs) There's
0: no dancing in the studio, Mark.
1: I can see your toe tapping over there. Okay. Don't, Don't tell me that.
0: All right, all right. Dr. Mark Musk is in the studio. Let me know what your questions are. We will tackle them, 877-933-2484. You know, Mark, when people pray, they, they sometimes they're praying to God the Father. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're asking the Holy Spirit specifically to lead and guide, and then they say, mm-hmm. in Jesus' name. Yeah. So talk about splitting up into uh, you know, the different parts of the, the Trinity. Is that a smart idea? How, do, how should we be praying?
1: Yeah, you know what? I think you can uh, you can experience paralysis by analysis here if you're okay. not if you're not Let's too careful. Yeah. Because uh, honestly though Bill, so many people you're, we we are so tempted to formalize and structure prayer that it loses its its very reality of what it is. I don't even like using it in the word anymore. I talk about it being the P word because right. it has so much baggage. attached to it, yeah. baggage. Yeah. And so essentially prayer is talking with God and it's talking with him like he's your friend Yeah, Amen. and he's right there with you and you can talk to him about anything. And, and so to get into all these structures, Sunday school, a lot of people, and there's plenty of biblical support for this that we pray to the father in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Holy spirit. A lot of kids are taught that and Mm -hmm. it's a nice framework, but I hope it doesn't become manacles on them where they think, Oh man, if I don't pray in Jesus name, amen. At the end of the prayer, boy, you know, it bounces right off the ceiling, doesn't get anywhere. <laughs> and God's not going to listen. So uh, there's times to pray to the Holy Spirit. Uh, this, the whole, when we claim promises in the scripture, John 16, Jesus tells us the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so when I want to make sure I'm clean before the Lord, and I'm talking to him about any kind of sin in my life that I have to confess, I'll talk to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, do your job, please. Exactly of anything that I need to make right. And so uh, there's nothing wrong with that at all. We're talking to our, uh, we're we're talking to the person who loves us the most. So.
0: All right. We've got a caller named Cliff. Cliff. Cliff from Park River. Cliff, welcome to the show. Hi, Cliff.
2: Yeah, thank you. Hello. Hi, Mark. Hi. Um, Hi. I got a question for you. Could you explain the difference between Uh, good works that are filthy rags, and works of righteousness.
1: Do you believe
2: they're different, or could you explain that to us?
1: Yeah, that's really a good question, Cliff, because I don't think the actual deeds may differ much. So that, you know, the proverbial of leading the little old lady across the street or helping someone pick up their books that they dropped on the ground or something like that, the acts themselves might not differ much between The kinds of works that mean nothing to God and then the kind of works of righteousness are the things that we do to serve God as his servants. And the key here is uh, I like bringing in the word justification here, uh, Cliff, that uh, if we think that any of these kind of works we do are going to justify us before God, that's the filthy rags. Forget it that there's nothing we can do, uh, that these are fine works in and of themselves, but for some people, they are the most brutal, subtle diversion away from the gospel because they think that they're earning brownie points with God and they're justifying themselves before God. And that will kill any of us that gets onto that track. However once we realize that we are in desperate need of forgiveness of sins, and we see Jesus as our Savior taking that guilt and that penalty away from us, then we wish to please God with our lives. And oftentimes, those good works are the way that we do that, because God loves it when we love people. So we go out and love people. Uh, He's going to be very pleased by that. But if we think that that's somehow going to earn uh, brownie points from God, we are really, really in trouble. It's so subtle, but it is so toxic to get uh, going down that path.
2: Do Do you think that that has not been taught well in the church, or do you think it's been adequate?
1: It's one of those things, Cliff. I think it's probably been taught well, but it has to be taught often, too. I'll just use myself. I got to be reminded of that to say, I think, you know, I start getting into this prideful thing about God's pretty lucky to have me, you know, I'm just pretty <laughs> good guy. Look at that neat thing I just did. Mm-hmm. And it's like, take that thing and burn it. You know, that the, a good thing gets poisoned because of the motives that I'm trying to make myself look good before God. So I think it's something I, I, that should be regularly, we should be reminding each other of that. Cliff,
0: those are great, I, great questions. I loved having you on the show. Could, Thanks, Cliff.
2: Could could I ask a further one? One more. It? Yep, bonus okay. question. Would, would yeah? Would the the good works of righteousness would that be uh, purely the Holy Spirit working through us? Because you mentioned us doing good works. Mm-hmm. Um, how how would you divide that? You know, I, I don't know if port. you can,
1: because this kind of stuff comes from the innermost part of us, uh, Cliff, and I don't understand myself a lot of the time. Where do I where do I even see, have the eyes to see sometimes that someone's in need, that I can help? Is that the Holy Spirit prompting that, or is it my perception? Is it a combination of the two? I don't know. I, I'm not that much of an expert on my inner workings, and so I just, I glorify God for it, because I know if He hadn't opened my eyes, I wouldn't see anything. But yet, you know, where where does God, uh, start and uh, me leave off i don't know if any of us can nail that down thank you so
0: much cliff great having you on the show all right mark Here's has been thinking there's yeah he's a thinker yeah. here's a question do the verse i think it's in matthew five eighteen. i tell you until heaven and earth disappear not the smallest letter not even the least stroke of a pen uh will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Yes. I think there was something uh, about uh, warning about removing a jot or a tittle from God's Word that has left me terrified of choosing the wrong version of the Bible. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I, I think we, we uh, sometimes can worry ourselves into a corner and okay. end up being concerned about things that uh, don't concern God nearly as much as it concerns us. That if something is serious that we're doing in the scriptures, don't we have to trust God that he is going to prompt us? This illumination is going to take place and he's going to say, hey, Bill, or hey, Mark, hey, Rebecca, you got to knock it off with that. That's just wrong. Or what you're saying there about that passage, you got to take another look. You know, we we depend on God for that. That's what faith is. It's depending on him to guide us as we read our Bibles, as we look at all these things. And so uh, I'm, I'm not going to lay awake at night worrying about uh, that that verse there. Uh, the, what I wish you would have read before that is a very much a classic verse too, though. In, in Matthew five eighteen, where Jesus says, "Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished." That's the one that you read the the verse before it. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Mm -hmm. And so now we are not under the requirements of the law, again, to justify ourselves. Jesus has fulfilled the requirements of the law. I like to use the analogy, Bill, with my students to say that when they get their degree and they graduate from Northwestern, they have fulfilled the requirements of that degree. They don't have to worry about it anymore. It's Mm -hmm. finished. It's been completed. And so when Jesus says, I have fulfilled the law, now we're operating on a whole different level here, and not this thing about the observance of the law uh, justifying us or not. So uh, that's, that's so important to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Anonymous uh,
0: listener, uh, Mark, said mm-hmm. uh, Paul warns against false teachers or teaching. So when a mainstream evangelical pastor starts questioning wild, widely held traditional views of issues like the doctrine of hell or sexuality, mm-hmm. is it time to leave? Or can he be trusted as long as the gospel is preached, if that is possible without eternal hell?
1: Yeah, boy, I I don't know if we can, you know, just slice that just right, because there's so many variables that go into that. On the one hand, anybody who's studying the Bible, you're going to always run into questions and issues and doubts you have about passages and things. Maybe you've been taught all your life that you read the scriptures and you can't see it there. It looks like something else. And so these pastors, sometimes they're in the process of growing. And sometimes that's not a clean process. Yeah. It involves a lot of deliberating over things that maybe later on they reject, but they, they're they considering it now. And I think we have to give them a little room there to be able to do that although i think pastors sometimes got to be ca- a little more candid about what some of those struggles are when they're right. going through that because you can you can stir the flock unnecessarily if you're not careful by talking about a lot of these questions that you might have uh, but then on the other hand when someone really commits themselves to something that the scriptures doesn't te- uh, don't teach Uh, then uh, there is that option of saying uh, maybe we have to uh, dissociate ourselves here from this fellowship uh, if this is going to continue like that. But I don't think it's an easy or a quick decision that's made. I think much time and effort would go into working it through and talking it through And uh, it's one of the, I think it's one of the weaknesses in the church, honestly, Bill, today is that when uh, preachers preach and give their messages on the weekends, there is never really sufficient time for interaction and feedback Mm -hmm. and dialogue on those things that they bring up. And so a lot of times people walk out of the church very frustrated where they're saying... But pastor, you know, what about this passage or, or where are you going with that, pastor? What What are the implications of this? And it would be great if we could reorder our services a little bit to have a message right. and, and have 20, 30 minutes of interaction. I agree. And Dr. Mark Muska is in studio. We're going to take your calls or questions. 877-933-2484
0: is the number. I'll give it again. 877-933-2484. We'll be back in a little bit. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Mark Musk is in studio and we are uh, open to taking your questions. 877-933-2484. Mark, here's a question um, in the queue. John 1125 talks about Jesus talking to Mary and Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Mm -hmm. Um, Great passage. It's a great passage. I love it. And it's a memory verse of mine. And, Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking when he said i'm the resurrection and the life mary uh what was he referring to his physical resurrection from the dead
1: or the resurrection at the at end at the end of time it's got to be the second one at least if not the first one okay because in the context here is he's talking here about lazarus cuz lazarus has just died right and so that he's clearly speaking about lazarus here uh, has believed in him, and so he'll live even after he dies. It says in the passage, I should probably read some of it, uh, John eleven twenty three. Jesus said uh, to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said, here's your verse, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord. So, He's specifically talking there about our resurrection that's going to take place. Mm-hmm. But then when he says, I am the resurrection, that's pointing to him as the source of the resurrection and the first of the resurrection. And Paul gets into this in First Corinthians 15, where he talks about Christ being the first fruits of the resurrection. So he's the first to be raised, but he sure isn't the last. Mm-hmm. All of his followers will be Uh, raised after uh, at the end of the age when the trumpet sounds and the angel shouts everybody's coming back so when we read psalms and there's a psalm of david
0: Mm -hmm. does that mean specifically that it was written by david or it's a psalm for david or Mm -hmm. a psalm about david
1: feel free to answer anytime Uh, yes
0: <laughs> That's it, huh? Well, That's it, it's,
1: it's most likely all of them. Okay. This comes in the superscriptions at the beginning of the Psalms. People uh, read these and they see that they uh, a song of David and a psalm of David, something like that. But all there is there is a preposition there and then David's name. So it just says, of David. Or uh, uh, of David, and so we don't know if it's dedicated to David or if he actually wrote it himself. And I don't know if we can settle that. With some of the Psalms, I think we can because there's further superscriptions that help us understand the setting for the Psalm. Uh, One of the most famous is Psalm 51, where it says at the beginning of the Psalm, uh, for the choir director, a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba, and it's a Psalm of penitence. So Mm -hmm. this is David. Writing that because of the further word there, and you know this is kind of a of a, um, a a, a, a pat off the path here, Bill, for what you asked. But as long as we're talking of, about the Psalms, uh, people might be interested in because there, there's kind of confusion with this. Mm-hmm. That when you read the Psalms, like Psalm 51, like this, when uh, a lot of Bibles will give a a uh, a title for the Psalm that will say something like David's Song of Penitence or something like that, and then it will include this superscription for the choir director of Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone into the Bathsheba. And then the psalm starts in verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the great, greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Now, that heading is put in there by the editors of your Bibles. That is not in the text of the psalms. But that superscription is, that that is part of the inspired text of Scripture. It isn't mm-hmm. something that the translators stuck in there to help us understand what the psalm says. And uh, when I talk to students about this, most of them are not aware of that. That that those those headings for uh, the the superscriptions are in fact in this, the the text of scripture, but the titles aren't. That that editors put in there. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting, Mark. Um, I appreciate that. It's just one. What One little baby step, Bill, in properly understanding and interpreting the Scriptures. Right. And I hope our listeners are dead serious about that. Oh, they are. They want to get it right. Oh, I, you know? they, I and hear so, that all the time. Yeah. I mean, because Scripture
0: was not written to us, but it was written for us, right? Mm, I think it's both, isn't it? Both? Mm, I don't know. I'm yeah. just, I yeah. mean, because we always have to look at the context of right. the verse and who it was written to. And oh, I see what you mean there. It wasn't written directly to no, us. No, no. Okay. It was written for mm-hmm. us, but it wasn't mm-hmm. written Okay. to us, Right. I guess. I mean, mm-hmm. part. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not asking the question well. Mm-hmm. You're agreeing. <laughs> yes,
1: you didn't <laughs> ask ask the question well. So, <laughs> no, I can see what you're saying. Is we have to take into account the original audience and the original people for whom this was written. But then there's carryover for us as well uh, that transcends the centuries. Yeah, because
0: we're we're real willing to take a verse from Scripture and somehow configure it to be our life first or mm-hmm. something that we're going to use um, as a promise that may not even be a promise. Mm-hmm.
1: So we have to be really careful about that as well. Well, that, and it's a good point, Bill, and especially to interpret things properly, but also then to apply it properly. Yes. That we can figure out what a passage means, but then what does it mean for us? That sometimes words were directed directly toward Israel in the Old Testament mm-hmm. and not necessarily to all followers of Christ throughout the ages. There's some passages in the Gospels where Jesus is promising something specifically to the apostles. And it's not necessarily something that carries over to us. And mm-hmm. so we have to be very careful to look at the context and not uh, be pulling verses out by the roots, bleeding, so to speak, and and uh, making them apply to our lives when they may not have been written for our situation. Because right.
0: so. when you read James 5.15, and it says the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to claim that as the verse that's going to make... My, you know, person that I know who is sick, well, Mm -hmm. and then that person doesn't get well. Mm -hmm. So then what happened?
1: Well, there, again, we can oversimplify these verses if we're not careful, because there's plenty of people that died in the Bible. I mean, we can look at Lazarus here, you know, that uh, that prayer was offered for him, I'm sure, before he died. Now, nobody knew what Jesus was going to do by raising him from the dead there in uh, John chapter 11 but uh, there's cases where uh, the, the answer to the prayer is no and we have to be careful about presuming upon God that we know what his will is for people uh, when they're sick for example so i go bill my my uh, uh, for 40 years as a christian my uh, guidance for that is i try to pattern after jesus in the garden where he said father if it's possible Take this cup away from me. Um, That was his request. But then remember what he said? Yet not my will, but yours be done. Mm -hmm. So he always subjected his requests to the work of God and the the plans of God. And sometimes it's a person's time and they don't recover from illness. And then sometimes it is and they get miraculously cured. So I think James is zeroing in on the second part of that. And if he heard people saying this is some guarantee that everybody's going to get you know healed if they get prayed for, I can just see James going, "Oh wait, 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 wait! You know we got to talk about this more. You're you're over you're over guaranteeing things that there's more to this discussion. Mm-hmm. He just wants to open their hearts to the idea that you pray for someone and you pray seriously and you trust God to raise them up and let Him do what He does." Yeah. Well, Rebecca's been chomping at the bit to ask a question. So, okay.
0: Rebecca,
3: is that me chomping? That's was you that, chomping. that sound in the chomping. background. Just chomping. I threw in <laughs> like a chomp. Well, and now this is not gonna. Now you've built it up too much. Now I'm worried my question's not good enough.
1: No, it's always not good enough. Always good enough. <laughs> Yours are better than his, Rebecca. Well, oh, oh yeah. Yeah. thanks, okay. Mark. Yeah. I love mm-hmm. you too. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and I, I, it was your statement about the difference between interpretation and application right. that I think made me think of of this. And I, I don't know if I'll put it exactly correct, but okay. The, the difference between faith and obedience. Is mm-hmm. there a difference? I know they're interconnected, but we've been talking about Abraham around here recently, and I came back to the passage in Hebrews, because Abraham is seen as a model of faith, mm-hmm. a forefather of our faith. But the reason that we understand about his faith is by his actions, his right. obedience. We don't hear a lot of Abraham's inner monologue about mm-hmm. his thought life in Scripture. Yep. So in a passage like Hebrews 11, it says by faith, Abraham When called to go to a place, he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Mm -hmm. So I guess what is the difference between faith or belief and obedience and how do they intersect?
1: Yeah, faith is a disposition. It's an attitude. It's an attitude of dependence. I'm really getting away from using the word faith anymore because, again, it's a stained glass word and it's overused and sometimes people misunderstand it. The two I'm really fond of lately has been uh, depend and rely where I think you can say about Abraham, uh, he was relying on God, that God knew what he was doing here. But it translated out into his actions of doing what God told him to do, so that we obey by faith. And I bet every single person in your audience can think of illustrations of that, where you just kind of venture out into the dark and say, okay, Lord, you tell me I'm supposed to do this, so I'm going to do it, but I am absolutely dependent on you here to make this work or to be with me. Uh, yeah, it's my show every day. On, on my, uh, at my side. Yeah. Seriously, it is. Every time you open that mic, it, it is. is an act of dependence, oh, isn't it? I'm desperate. Yes. Yeah. But that is the attitude. And then it's, it's what, enacted or it's played out in obedience. Does that make sense? Yeah. I like it. I
0: like it too. Yeah. All right, I've got time for uh, one more in the lineup here, Mark. It says before the break, if Jesus did away with the law, then why in the next two chapters was he teaching it? Secondly, if he did away with it, at what point in the Bible was the law done away with? Mm -hmm. Some deep thinking.
1: Yeah. You want me to talk about that right Uh, now? Yeah, that'd be great. Before break. okay, right now. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I don't think he did away with it. He fulfilled it. And there's a big difference there. And so it's not that that the law has been done away with. It served its purpose, Paul tells us in Galatians 3. It acted as our tutor to teach us our dependence on God for a Savior to save us when we fell short of keeping that law. And so it, it fulfilled its function in the grand scheme of God. And when was it fulfilled? It was fulfilled when Jesus took that last breath and said, it is finished that he completed the requirements of the law and now uh, we no longer are under the law but under under grace under faith
0: mhm i like all right we're going to uh, go to a break but when we come back lots more with dr mark muska let us know what your questions are 8779332484 back to the show. Glad you are with us today. Dr. Mark Musk is in the studio. If you uh, have a question about the Bible, let us know what it is, because he's the Bible. He uh, can answer just about anything you have. Anything you want to throw at him is going to work. Um, you know, Mark, it's a question that, that comes up regularly. And when we have um, doubts, and we we're talking mm-hmm. about this, if a pastor goes through a, a period of doubt, isn't it mm-hmm. okay for, for us to express our doubts, and wouldn't you even say to that pastor, preach your doubts,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or or would that be a bad idea? Uh, maybe. Okay. Uh, uh, pr- pastors have to be careful again with this thing. You don't want to stir the flock and have them okay. and have them thinking about things they normally wouldn't think about. Uh, pastors are students of the Word uh, far more than most of the people in their okay. flock, and so they're going to be into things perhaps that their people just aren't going to be able to understand real well. I get it and so i think they have to be careful about that but uh, with doubts and questions in general bill you've heard me say this over and over again that i never run away from those uh that i i really like what an old uh, 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 apologist Uh, said about this uh, years ago in a book that he wrote about uh, doubt called Into Minds. Uh, The British apologist, Oz Guinness, Mm -hmm. uh, he's done a lot of really good work. Oz is getting up there in age now, but his stuff is really good. But 40 years ago, he wrote, and I loved what he said, where we can't be too hard on doubt, but we also can't be too soft on doubt that doubt is dangerous we can't be too soft on it and glorify it that's what the skeptics do they doubt everything well they they doubt everything except they doubt everything they're sure about that that they doubt everything but otherwise they doubt everything and that is not to be the place of the believer that, But yet we can be too hard on doubt and equate how, doubt with unbelief. Doubt is not unbelief. Oz Guinness talked about doubt being the ground between belief and unbelief, where we haven't made up our minds yet. That's why he titled his book, In Two Minds. I kind of believe it, but I kind of don't, and I got to work it out. And so sometimes if we equate doubt with unbelief, we end up beating ourselves over the head that we don't believe something that we should So uh, I encourage my students, you have doubts, bring them up. Let's talk about them in class. Let's debate these things. Let's think it through. Let's pray. Let's talk to the Lord about it. And then the goal, Bill, is to resolve your doubts if possible, or at least to minimize them. And so what I like, the expression I like to use with my students is to investigate and to look into things. You've got doubts about the truth of Scripture. You've got doubts about Jesus being God. You've got doubts about God existing, period. Uh, Do your work and examine. In that, but then the goal is to come to what I like to call a settled faith on it, where you settle the question. You make a decision. Either I'm going to believe this or I'm not going to believe it. I'm not just going to sit there dangling forever. Mm-hmm. To me, that's being too soft on doubt. And so many times we have to settle these kinds of questions. I remember Billy Graham, very famous for this, where he had his doubts about the scripture. And if I remember the story right, somebody might need to correct me, but Billy finally came to a place where he had to make a decision. And as the story goes that I've been told, this might be folklore, uh, he was in a park and he put his Bible on a park bench and he knelt down before the park bench and the Bible and he just said to the Lord, Lord, I can't answer all the questions about this that I have about your word and wondering about it, but I'm from this day on, I'm going to treat this like your word and it's your word to us and I'm going to teach it and preach it that way. And he saw that as a real turning point in his ministry Mm -hmm. because he settled it. He got it done with. And so uh, doubt is not something to be condemned in and of itself unless it just lingers. Then we may have a problem. Did he turn out having a successful ministry? Uh,
0: Yes. Okay. Just checking. Hmm? Yeah. All right. Uh, Here's one. Do you answer questions about apologetics and how people claim there's no physical evidence on earth that David
1: ever existed? Well, that is not true, but uh, I am not. It is not my area. Uh, the the other uh, sidekick that we have in here sometimes the very much younger Brad Sickler, who's got a uh, <laughs> a degree in both theology and philosophy. He's much sharper in apologetics than I am. Uh, But this is just factually not true, that there's uh, discoveries being made all the time over in Israel by uh, archaeologists, both Israeli archaeologists, and it seems like people from all over Europe and North America are over there digging in the dirt, too. And so... Just in the last few years, there have been things found that are verifying uh, David, uh, the city of David, for example, is at the south end of the city of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and now there's actual artifacts that are being found with his name on them. And so uh, that is uh, that is just not factually true, that there is no evidence for David. Uh, we have to be careful with archaeology because there's never been an archaeological discovery that has ever refuted or found the Bible to be false Mm -hmm. in its historical record, but yet maybe 5% of what's in the Bible has been found. And so that's why these archaeologists keep on digging in the dirt. They're looking for this stuff. And especially, I've been over to Israel several times, and in Israel now, there is an active archaeological movement going on in that country, and in particular in Jerusalem. So they are discovering things all the time when they are digging around and finding things. It's really exciting. How do you get permission to go digging around in Jerusalem? It takes a lot of permission because the government has to be careful. Well, there's a bad history with this in that whole region. Like, Egypt, it got looted by a lot of European archaeologists yeah. that took all these valuable things. Yeah. If you want to see a lot of Egyptian uh, artifacts, you got to go to the museums in Berlin and London really? and so forth, because that's where they are. And so the Israelis are very strict about just who gets to do what. Usually it's through schools and uh, scholars that have established credentials where they get them working in these, in these areas. Mm-hmm.
0: So, Mark, uh, Jesus was always meeting needs, mm-hmm. and it seemed that before he would uh, say something, he would meet a need. Is that seemed to be kind of the way that that he operated?
1: I suppose. I mean, I haven't like, thought about it in those terms before. I guess that he's he's always active. He's just not sitting on some tree stump. No, yum, there's always a, a need that's being met. Well, he does yammer away sometimes. I mean, Sermon on the Mount is three chapters. Okay, He's, he's going for a while there. <laughs> yeah. uh, the Mount Olive just Discourse is another two chapters there yeah. at the end of Matthew. So he does go on uh, with his with his discourses, but he is doing stuff. Uh, the There's such an interplay there, Bill, between what he does and what he says. Uh, we were just in this in the Gospel of John in my New Testament class, that John pairs up Jesus' claims about himself and what he's teaching about himself with what he did. So when he feeds the 5,000, what does he say? I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life, yes. Comes down from heaven. Right. When he raises Lazarus, what does he say? We just read the it. the resurrection in the life. Yeah. yeah. When he heals the man born blind, what does he say? I am the light of the world. Right. You know, so he's... Ah, he's so cool. He's constantly doing that. So the interplay there between his signs and his claims is always there. And the thing I think we have to get to, though, is Jesus just wasn't doing this to make life easier for people. He definitely did that when he opened blind eyes and when he healed uh, someone who had leprosy or something like that. So he did improve people's lives, but that was not the ultimate purpose for his signs. His signs were intended to generate faith in the people seeing them Mm -hmm. that he was the one. He was the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he wasn't just some goody-goody out there doing nice things for people. I don't want to diminish the importance of that because it is important. He did relieve the needs of many people, but it was for the purpose of pointing to him as being sent from the Father. And he makes that explicit Mm -hmm. in in what he does. He says, even if you don't believe what I say, believe the works that I do that the Father has sent me. And so uh, he's he's doing those works so that they believe in him. I like the way John says it right at the end of his first miracle in the uh, Gospel of John where... When he turns the water into wine, uh, John just throws a little verse in there. I think it's John two eleven, where he says uh, th- this was the first of his works that he did, and his disciples believed in him. And it's like, bingo, mm-hmm. that's right. That's what the purpose of these signs are. Was it a dark red wine or was it a Chardonnay? It had to be good. The, well, we steward, no, it was the good. steward said it was good. I'm not an expert on this because I don't like any wine. And so I don't I, either, I, but I, I'm just so, saying, I mean, yeah.
0: would, would it be a dark, rich, red wine, almost symbolic of anything else Who other knows? than he just made some great wine? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. We,
1: can, we can ask him someday.
0: I'm going to. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I bet you I'm don't. In a, I'm going to button line. If All you're right, in line, I, I I'm going to button you line
0: before you. you. When you see Jesus, I can't wait.
1: your mouth is going to drop <laughs> open and you're going to forget about wine.
0: <laughs> oh, I, I believe I am. I yeah. believe I am. So when uh, the woman with the issue of blood, yes, uh, she's ceremonially ceremonially unclean, yes, and she probably has no business being in that public place touching a rabbi, right? Mm-hmm. And Jairus is kind of a big deal, synagogue leader, yeah, his man of influence. Daughter died. His daughter is dying. Mm-hmm. Um, she died. Jesus, Past tense. She died. Yeah, she died, and the idea that the, his power has gone out of him as he's walking through a mob Mm -hmm. where they're not more than just her seeking some kind of touch from God. They wanted to touch this man. Mm -hmm. How come her touch triggered the something has gone out of me? Good question. Yeah. I'm going
1: to,
0: I'll ask that one. Put that on the list too. If you got got a lot with with the wine.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But seriously, it's great. I love your questions, Bill. I love questions. Questions are the vehicle of learning. You know, you get curious and you want to know. And so I don't think that ever is embarrassing to God that we're asking questions.
0: No, I don't either. Um, I I think it's important that we all ask questions and have some great questions come in today. Um,
1: The thing I like about that uh, lepers cleansed and this woman's issue of blood being healed and that is that she was unclean. So if any of these people touched her, they would become unclean and they would have to go through a ritual process wow. of cleansing themselves. But the cool thing about Jesus is, is it was like the reverse whammy with Jesus, where when he touched these people, he didn't become unclean. They became clean. He cleansed them. And so it's like the power went the opposite direction of what the law would say, said would happen. So that's pretty cool that he is the one that cleanses. He does not become unclean himself. Mm
0: hmm but you think about the the way he took time with her i mean if you're yep. if you go to er ever they they have a triage nurse that tries to figure out who you who you attend to first mm-hmm. and if you think of this woman who's had an issue of blood for years and years and then a synagogue ruler who's got a dying daughter um yeah go to the end of the line lady end of know, the line you know, lady the yeah, yeah yeah so so i don't know if there's anything else he was trying to teach us in that moment yeah that you can be an outsider Uh, And I'm going to go to you first.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mark, it's always fun to have you here. Sure. And uh, I'm glad you uh, came in and and I'm glad that. uh,
1: Fastest 60 minutes of my day. Labby Bluey listened today. Yeah. You think they stayed and listened the whole time? Probably not. Yeah. Too much talking, not enough (laughs) action. (laughs) With a four-year-old and a two-year-old. They they, for sure didn't listen. They got to be running everywhere. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: So thanks so much. If you missed any of the show, you can go to MyFaithRadio.com, check the show page, Afternoons with me, Bill, and then uh, you can listen to uh, anything you missed. Thanks for listening today and have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow.